Right, thank you uh, very much for all coming. Uh, my name is uh, Toby Dodge. I'm the director of the Middle East Centre here at the London School of Economics. Um, it's a great pleasure to introduce Professor Ali Ansari uh, of St Andrews University. He's come all this way uh, to, to spread his pearls of wisdom before us. Um, he is a, a, a professor of Iranian history at St Andrews, the founding director of uh, the Institute for Iranian Studies. He's also the president of the British Institute for Persian Studies. He's got more titles than many. Um, but more importantly, um, he's, I think, one of the world's leading experts on modern Iranian history, has produced a string of books that, if you haven't read them yet, you should do. Um, and even more importantly than that, he's one of my oldest friends. Yeah, yeah, uh, we did our masters and our PhDs together, which may ex explain why he's here. And of course, this is a multimedia presentation, so hopefully you've all got your handout supplied by uh, Professor Ansari. There'll be slides, he'll talk, and then at the end he's going to do a little dance. As yeah. well. um, so uh, uh, Professor Ansari is going to speak on Anglo-Iranian relations revisited, the curious case of the proposed nuclear company of Britain and Iran for about uh, half an hour, maybe 45 minutes, um, and uh, that which means it'll end by 7.15. We've yeah. got time for questions and discussion. Without further ado, Professor Ansari. Thank you very much, David. It was an introduction. I'm, uh, I don't know how I'll be able to match the expectation you have now established. Well, it's a very great pleasure to be here. Um, I'm going to talk, as you can tell, about a, a relatively minor episode that seems to have occurred in the late 1970s in Anglo-Iranian relations, or I should be more specific and say British-Iranian relations, um, and one that actually... Um, is somewhat counterintuitive to the narrative of Anglo-Iranian relations that we normally um, understand, the sort of the orthodox narrative of a very antagonistic and antithetical relationship, is one that is in some ways contradicted by what we see uh, in this episode. It also tells us a little bit about um, Iranian nuclear policy in the 1970s, the relationship of the West with that policy, but also uh, how Iran dealt with the various um, opportunities that it faced and how it sort of strove to sort of develop those opportunities. Um, also, as with all these cases, um, as you delve into the archives and have a look at these documents and how did I approach this really was uh, more out of a, uh, a curiosity of, of looking at various files and digging out various files to see what one could find really by accident rather than deliberation. But there were some really quite interesting vignettes that I'll tell you as we go through in the documents. Um, one in particular is the visit of the Secretary of Energy at the time, Tony Benn, to see the Shah in 1977, um, 1976, I believe. And uh, that, was, that was quite revealing, I have to say, not only for the way in which Benn interrelated with the Shah himself and the admiration in which he expressed for the Shah, but also some of the things that the Shah revealed to Tony Benn. I've had the opportunity to talk also to Dr. Akbar Etemad, who is the gentleman who ran the Atomic Energy Organization of Iran at the time. And what's also been quite interesting is to juxtapose what the documents tell us, the British documents in this case, and I look almost exclusively at the British side of things. Um, I'll direct you over to Rohan over there, he'll tell you all about the American side of things, but I'm pleased to say there's a lot of also uh, 
uh, a lot of coincidence there, so we can't all be wrong because it all seems to fit in together. But there are some interesting aspects of the, of the dynamic between the British and the Iranians at this stage, where the Americans were largely excluded in some ways. I mean, the Americans were, the intention was to keep them, not necessarily in the dark, but keep them at arm's length while certain negotiations were taking place, and hopefully to present the Carter administration at the time with a fair economy if that was going to be the case. It was also necessary to keep the French uh, and the Germans really largely in the dark. Largely for commercial competition interests. I mean, one of the things that comes out in the documents is this anxiety over maintaining the secrecy of the negotiations, not necessarily, and this was the interesting thing, not necessarily because they were worried about what might be the view domestically, although there was that element, obviously, it was more actually to do with competitive advantage, and that was the interesting thing, that they were more anxious that particularly the French and the Germans would interfere and start to meddle in the agreement, but also that the Americans themselves were very anxious about the notions of technology transfer and enrichment capability and this sort of thing, um, might also start to interfere and, and get in the way. The period in the 1970s is often held by certainly more modern uh, 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 tellers of the tale as a period when the West was very much in favour of Iran's nuclear development and where the West was, uh, you know, where, where the, the whole environment was much more sympathetic. The environment was sympathetic, was much more sympathetic, in large part because, of course, in the 70s, the nuclear, nuclear energy was the way forward. It was very much the vogue thing to do. It was very much, you know, this was a sort of an industry that was on the up. But it's actually a mistake to think that the West did not have anxieties about the possibility of proliferation. There was. It was always in the background. And you have to bear that in mind. I think those arguments that people have today that say, for instance, the Americans were much more open to it, they weren't. And in fact, if you look at the way in which the British handled this, they were acutely aware that uh, the Americans, and particularly under the Carter administration, might be um, a little bit wary of some of the things that were going on. How the British sought to circumvent that is quite interesting. How they sort of handle the Iranians is quite interesting, as well as in detail what Etimad and others sought to sort of portray themselves to the West as you know what we want, what our ambitions are, what assurances we can give you. So all these things, all these details are quite quite interesting. I won't go into all of them in the, the, the sort of minute detail in a sense, because some of it is, is very, very um, not trivial, but it's 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 something that really can only come out if you look at ultimately at the um, the article itself when it comes out, but also I've, I've copied in some of the quotes there on the sheet. I'm not your police, I'm going to read these quotes, but they're there really for you to follow on as we go through because they sort of, um, uh, they, sort of they illuminate certain aspects of the, uh, of, of the narrative of the story I'm going to tell you. Now, the gentleman who really is at the forefront of this, of this dynamic, the gentleman to the right there is Dr. Akbaretimod, a youthful Dr. Akbaretimod, who was then uh, he was um, Vice-Chancellor of Busino University in Hamadan, and he was brought out of his uh, luxury academic lifestyle, has to be said, and told that he, uh, uh, he should run the Atomic Energy Organization of Iran, which was being established in 1974. Uh, Iran did have a fledgling sort of nuclear research program, Atoms for Peace, and so on and so forth, through the late 50s and 60s. But by sort of the mid, mid to late 60s, according anyway to the British Council, it had largely stagnated and it wasn't really going anywhere. One of the major criticisms of this was, or the reasons why people felt it wasn't going anywhere, was because there was no organisation behind it. There was no plan. There was no system of how to structure this development. In 1974, for a variety of reasons, um, the Shah decided, and I'll go into it, the Shah decided that uh, now was the time to bring uh, this nuclear physicist to the forefront and place him in charge of the atomic energy 
International Organization of Iran. And one of the first interesting aspects of this, and this comes through Akmer Etemad's memoirs and also in interviews with him, but it's reflected in other sources, is, is basically how this was all done. So uh, Akmer Etemad was approached um, really by the court, uh, I mean the Prime Minister's office, but then also the court, and they said the Shah would very much like you to do this. And Etemad sort of demurred and sort of said, well, you know, I'm really rather comfortable in my university job. I'm not really sure this sort of thing you want to do. And most interestingly, he sort of said, to be perfectly honest, you know, how the hell are we going to start this project? I and mean, we have nothing. I mean, it was an interesting idea. He said, there's no industrial basis for what we want to do at the moment. And if we were to do this, we'd have to really start from scratch. I mean, how are we going to develop an industrial, uh, a sort of a nuclear industry in the country? So he sort of negotiated a position of himself, which arguably uh, uh, was a, you know, allowed him a lot more freedom of manoeuvre vis-à-vis, you know, the, the development of the, of the sector, uh, and the Shah. The Shah, I mean, he, Akbar Etemad sort of basically talks about a relationship with the Shah, um, which is much more about a dialogue, really, than him being instructed to do things. I think, in many ways, of course, the Shah, as we'll see, had ultimate uh, control over the strategic direction, but clearly, he was a much more sort of flat organizational structure. Uh, Etemad was going to bring in a lot of physicists and others to work with them, very highly educated people. One, uh, Sutadin Yahu, we'll see, was particularly important. Um, and basically, the way Etemar tried to organize the, the uh, Atomic Energy Organization of Iran was one in which there could be a lot more of this sort of like uh, dialogue. You know, it wasn't as hierarchical as many other institutions. And he himself and his relationship with the Shah seems to have been much more, how should we say, um, interactive rather than simply deferential and taking instructions. And when they actually set the whole thing up, what was interesting is that Etemar sort of essentially set out his conditions. He then goes off to the court, uh, talks to the chief of staff, of his Imperial Majesty, who then sit out and write out the terms of reference of his job. Um, basically, the Imperial Faramon, the decree. They write out the Faramon, take it to the Shah, who signs it. I mean, this is, for me, almost in some ways, quite an interesting sort of, cyber, you know, uh, not a revelation, so to speak, but it was an interesting sort of little development. Here you had a situation where someone was setting up uh, a, a, an organization of enormous strategic importance for the country, in which he basically lays out his own terms and conditions of his job. They sit together, coordinate it, write it all out, and the Shah then issues this, this dictum. Now, if I can just move on. The environment, of course, in this period is quite uh, different. We need to really be aware of the context in which we're talking about. This is a period, really, in the uh, 1974, which is post the oil boom, effectively just about post the oil boom, 1973. At the end of 1973, the Shah had actually been pivotal the quadrupling of oil prices. Remember that there were two basic oil price shocks in 1973. The one after the Yom War, but the second one, which in some ways was much more significant, was the one the Shah engineered from the Avaran Palace in December 1973. And this basically put a phenomenal amount of money at his disposal. And just to give you an example um, of the scale, uh, the fourth development plan, which was just coming to an end, had seen an investment of about $7 billion of oil revenue in the Iranian economy. The fifth development plan that would begin in 1974 was, uh, was an estimate of $21 billion to be invested from oil revenue. But with these oil price rises, the Shah basically somewhat abruptly announced to his officials in the Planet Budget Organization that there would now be $70 billion to spend. This was an enormous multiple of money. And um, some of the consequences we know, but what it means that from uh, both in, in terms of Iran's position and Iran's position vis-a-vis -vis the West, 
the balance of economic power in some ways had almost changed overnight. The oil shock affected the West quite badly, but from Iran it put it itself in the driving seat. And this was very important in terms of the image that the Shah sought to portray and, and, and the relationship he sought to develop. And so it's very important to see that as excited as we get about China today, Iran in many ways at the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s was very much this sort of uh, economic tiger coming through and, and really uh, the person to, uh, the country to watch. And the emperor of oil, as we see here in the uh, Time magazine, but also, you know, the Shah was very keen on spending rather lavishly on various things. There's a wonderful tale of Michael Heseltine going off to sell the Shah Concorde and... Uh, actually documented in the documentary where he goes off, they fly Concord off to Tehran and the Shah is invited to come and sit on the, uh, on, on the plane while they take a quick flight around Tehran and uh, um, uh, Heseltine is sitting there with the Shah and the Shah, as the plane sort of takes off and they reach cruising altitude, the Shah says, well thank you very much I'm off to go and sit in the cockpit uh, to have a look and see how this thing works. So Heseltine thinks, oh well that's my marketing opportunity buggered, I'll never get an opportunity again the plane lands they walk off into the tarmac and off, and the Shah says, very good, very good, I'll take three. Now, with that sort of that sort of attitude, you can see that people also in the West are thinking, my God, there is something here that's quite interesting. We need to get into this. So what you find is a situation here that fundamentally Iran has uh, the money, it has the clout, it has the prestige. I mean, this is a country that is uh, economically on the make, and the West wants a part of it. The Shah's interest in the nuclear industry, you'll probably have seen this actually, I mean this is now, it, it, it's all over the place actually, many of the, uh, the websites that want to put out because they're trying to obviously draw the analogy with, with the current situation. But basically this idea that um, if the Shah can build nuclear power plants, why can't we? Now where did the British come into this? Interestingly, and this shows, shows how um, it's, it's, it's good to feed your curiosity. When I was in the PRO, a place that Toby and I know sadly only too well, um, the Shah paid a visit to Britain in 1972, a state visit. And uh, in that uh, visit to Edward Heath's uh, government, uh, there was a document under the Prime Minister's office that said, a dinner party for the Shah. And I was just being nosy. I thought it would be very interesting to see who went to this dinner party for the Shah. I'd love to have a look. Um, and there was a lovely list of people who had been invited to attend this dinner party at number 10 Downing Street. But even more interesting was another piece of paper that was stuck in between that. And it was a meeting between Lord Rothschild, um, who was then part of a uh, special office at Edward Heath's cabinet, who was a former intelligence officer, who had had a private meeting and audience with the Shah. And in that meeting, Rothschild had basically suggested, this is 1972, Rothschild had basically intimated to the Shah, how would you like to be ahead of the West in nuclear technology. Now, being made an offer like that, of course, the Shah sort of said, yeah, I think that's a great idea. Um, tell me more. Um, and uh, Rothschild then reports back to Heath and stuff, and he says, you know, we may have an opportunity here. He talks about the fast breeder reactor. And he says, you know, this may be something we can do. So the initial forays, the sort of inquiries that the British made initially were in 1972, but then it largely goes quiet. The trail goes quiet. In 1974, as I said, is the crucial year when things begin uh, to pick up. Now, the two things, as, as most of you will know, one is obviously the oil price rise, the, cru the crucial year when uh, that facilitates the establishment of the uh, AEOI. But the other important thing that happens in that year, and it seems to be one of those things that affects Iran's nuclear ambitions, is that uh, India goes nuclear. 
and India's detonation of a nuclear device actually starts to change the dynamic between the nuclear suppliers and those countries that seek to develop a program. So you have this dynamic there that's always in the background. And if you look at all the negotiations that go on from that time onwards, there's always this anxiety about the way in which technology is being transferred and you know, how the Indians have managed to get hold of an explosive device or develop that technology. Um, there was this sort of uh, worry that basically we couldn't be quite as free and easy in terms of technology transfer. So Iran always insisted, by the way, it was one of the first signatories to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. It said that it demanded that sort of respect as being one of the first signatories to it. And yet it found almost, ironically, paradoxically, how you want to see it, in 1974, as it starts its program, it decides, uh, it finds that actually the suppliers are being a bit wary about it because there's a certain anxiety about what this might be. Now, how did the strategy develop? Well, basically, the Iranians decided from 1974 through to 1994, they wanted to develop a capacity to produce 23,000 megawatts of energy, electrical energy, from nuclear power. When I asked, actually, Akbari Tamad how this figure was reached, um, it's quite interesting. Yeah, he said he didn't know. Uh, how the figure was calculated, it seems to be that the Shah made an announcement, believe it or not, in the media. And once he made the announcement, he couldn't really backtrack from it. That said, talking to people in the industry, they say that's not entirely unusual, the way in which they sort of projected figures that they thought might be at least big. It's not actually far away. It would have been about 30% of Iran's electrical energy needs by the mid-1990s. And the interesting thing here, by the way, for those of us who uh, are interested in oil economics, everyone seemed to think that Iran's oil would run out by the mid-1990s, like many other places. So this idea was that by the mid-1990s, Iran would oil. Um, they wanted 23,000 megawatts of energy, and the idea was that they would build, from about 1983, the idea, after a decade of preparation, because a huge amount of preparation had to take place, after a decade of preparation, they would build two reactors a year, would come online, that would generate this, this power. So it was an ambitious plan, it was one that the Shah uh, was keen on pursuing, the technology was sexy, it was something that was showed was very modern, was very progressive, but it also served the need, as the Shah, one of the, the ideas behind it was, it uh, provided energy stability and security. The Shah, in the back of his mind, always said that Iran's political problems emerged from the fluctuation of the oil price. We've always had these problems. Oil is a very positive thing, but it's also a curse. What we want is we want to have energy stability. Energy stability will allow political stability i.e., in other words, the economic driver was driven very much in the background by a political driver, and that was quite interesting. It was driven by this notion that the politics behind it were very, very important. The other thing that came out, which was quite striking, was the, also the argument that the West only really respects Iran because of our energy dominance. And because we have this oil, and because we have this sort of this massive resource, we're able to leverage things out of Western countries. We can, we, our bargaining power is increased. But once we run out of the oil, what are we going to do? We need to have an alternative industrial base, and we need to have a sort of an, uh, um, a diverse industrial base that will put us in the top tier of economic powers. And of course, the nuclear industry had the advantage of being something which they felt could have a broad range of consequences as far as industrial development. So they understood it to be, in that sense, you know, something that would bring multiple, uh, multiple uh, rewards for them. At the time, in the middle of the 1970s, the British basically 
uh, for reasons that are best known to their own political decision makers and industrial decision makers. Um, the nuclear industry in, uh, in Britain was, they'd made a number of bad decisions in terms of reactors. Um, it wasn't really in as strong a position as, say, the, uh, the French or the, um, uh, the German industry. Um, the British basically concentrated on training. What they were very good at and what they uh, basically handled was the training of Iranian physicists. And Etimad was extremely keen to send as many young students to Britain. It helped, of course, that the language here was English, as they all liked, and, and the documents it also notes that a lot of them liked to come to London, so that helped. Uh, nobody really wanted, sadly, to go to Paris or to Bonn at the time. Um, and the American situation there was a bit far, you know, it, it wasn't quite as easy. But there were other reasons why they decided to build their relationship with the Europeans as opposed to the two superpowers of the day. And it's quite interesting, this dynamic of the choice that was being made. And uh, it's reflected in the documents, as I said, and also in Etimard's memoirs and the interviews I conducted with First of all, the two superpowers were seen as problematic because they were just too powerful as far as Iran was concerned. When Etimard was thinking about negotiating with each of the powers, he said, leave the Soviets on the side of that, but he said that the Americans in particular, we had a problem with the Americans. One is the Americans were extremely slow at doing anything. So whenever we signed anything with the Americans, or if we had this sort of like, uh, we had a contract, they, you know, their delivery was extremely slow. And if we wanted to push them, we had very little leverage to get stuff out. And he cited this example of a Brazilian who'd signed the, uh, the minister he bumped into in Vienna, who'd signed the deal with Westinghouse, and he said, you know, how's your nuclear program going? And he said, well, at this rate, you know, we might get our first reactor in 1990, you know, because, I mean, they're taking so long. And the point was, is what he was saying, was that the Brazilians were really annoyed with the Americans at not delivering, but there was nothing really they could do about it. The Soviets was very interesting, because the Soviets tried to acquire Iran's business, and it's interesting in light of what's happened recently. But uh, um, Etimard was invited on a tour of the Soviet Union. There's a wonderful document in the Foreign Office archives if you want to see it which is a letter which the British were quite, um, I think, enjoyed. There was a lot of schadenfreude about this. Off they went, Sutadinia and, and Etimad to uh, the Soviet Union. I think this is later. This is about 1976, 77. And apparently, the, and the doctor is very clear on it, he says, Etimad spared no moment in saying that the trip was hell. He said, I've never had a worse trip in my life. He said, uh, they didn't let us sort of relax. They took us on this vast tour to visit all these nuclear reactors around the Soviet Union. He's, and Etimod later told me they lost his luggage, which wasn't very good. Um, this doesn't turn up in the document. I don't know if they lost his luggage or simply acquired it for a bit of inspection. But he said, basically, they looked at it and they said that, you know, these nuclear reactors are so badly designed and, and such a disaster. He said the only people who would buy these nuclear reactors are the Eastern European countries who are forced to buy them. He said there's absolutely no way. And Sutadinia apparently says that they had a real great pleasure in sending a firm yet to the Russians. They say absolutely no chance. So the Russians are out. Even more interesting is they say that, he, and Etimod actually says this in the document, he says, he says, and I can confirm to you that all this talk about their caviar is absolute rubbish. He said, you know, the best caviar is the stuff we have. We're not having any of their rubbish. So he said, this is, you know, um, they, that, that was a non-starter. The Americans, as I said, there was the problem with the slowness, but the other thing they added to it was the Americans are a bit too transparent for them. This is also quite interesting. That everything we do with the Americans, they have to take in front of Congress and then they have to talk about it in detail things, and uh, not good, you know, it's a bit, yeah, we don't like it. Now, the French and the Germans, much better. French and Germans, they can deal with it. Now, where did the problem arise with the French and the Germans? And this, again, is quite interesting in terms of the way politics works. 
First of all, the Germans were only keen on turnkey contracts, and the turnkey contract was basically that which they delivered the whole nuclear reactor, lock, stock, and barrel to the Iranians, delivered all their own components, um, basically managed it effectively, and the Iranians didn't really have anything to show for it. And Etemad, very interesting, he was always very adamant about this. He said, we want to build a nuclear industry. We don't want just to buy nuclear reactors. What's the point of buying a reactor? Just that we want to have an industry. We want to have scientists. We want to be able to develop the capacity ourselves. And this was very important. At the heart of his whole, of his whole strategy was to build an industry in which clearly at some element there would be technology transfer. And this was the important. This was always where this sort of vague, rather than, you know, what can we transfer, what can't we transfer. The Germans were very clear, and part of the reason the Germans were very clear about it is they said, you can't build components like we do anyway, and we don't trust you to build components that will work, so we're not having it. And the, the, the Iranians felt this was a bit pompous and pretentious, and they didn't like it. And they sort of said, well, you know, you're not allowing us to develop our own, uh, uh, develop our own industry. So that was really the, the, the main problem with the Germans. Um, there was a slight problem also where they thought there was a little bit of corruption going on, uh, perhaps, at least it was alluded to, but they felt they were overcharging. But unfortunately, where the overcharging comes in, I think the French took the gold medal on this. So what you have, and you'll see this in the first quote, which is quite interesting in how the French handled it. Um, both the French and the Germans, by the way, what they tended to do was to, was to sign letters of intent, memorandums of understanding, start the process of sort of building the site and whatever, and then while the work was in progress, they'd get on with the agreement. It was, a, it was an odd structure of doing it, but the point was the agreement would almost come afterwards. And they were very keen on sort of bilateral safety agreements and other things and, and, and blocking out basically the opportunity for any technology transfer. The French, it turned out, were very anxious that they could only do business with the Shah himself. And there was always this sort of interesting idea among the Europeans and the Americans, to be honest, that all power resides with the Shah, therefore we go for the Shah himself and he will make the decisions. Forget these minions. These are just people who are there to uh, provide, you know, <coughs> the cosmetics of the whole process. And in one case, um, Etimard actually recounts where he was in Paris and bumped into, I don't know, it was very fortuitous, he bumped into a delegation of French nuclear scientists who said, oh, we're off to Tehran to meet with the Shah, and uh, Etimard sabotaged it. He said, how can you be going off to meet with the Shah but I'm not there? And they said, well, off we go. Uh, Etemad actually sabotaged the, the visit and later went to explain himself to the Shah and said, you know, I didn't think it was appropriate that there should be a bilateral meeting on the nuclear uh, developments in Iran without the head of the AEOI there. And the Shah said, actually, you're, you're absolutely correct. I didn't realize that this, you know, fine, good. The other case which you see there with Soutadiniya is very, very interesting because Soutadiniya was sort of uh, Etemad's deputy. But, and it also shows how the British sort of read the situation that was going on, how important the technocrats were in this process. That basically what had happened was the French were trying to make agreements, and I have to say, whenever politicians get involved, it's, it's a little bit dangerous. Uh, you'll see in a minute, there were some promises made even between Callaghan and Aveda that were quite unrealistic, which MOD officials then had to sort of scrap. But here, what you have is a situation where... Uh, the, the, the French had basically signed an agreement um, with the Prime Minister's office, effectively, and Soutadinia intervened and said, it's not your responsibility to do And they said, well, you know, the Shah wants it. He said, no, no, the Shah has delegated us this responsibility. And basically, you've got to be kidding me. Did I start at 6.30? Yeah. Well, I've well, got an hour, right? Now, the... Um, 
Okay, well, we'll speed up. We'll speed up. But we'll get there. So, where was I? Soutadinia. So he basically gets the French. He gets the French by dealing with the French in a very sort of hard and uh, tough negotiation. Got them to drop the price of their reactors by 30%, which is quite strong. Now, all this actually fed into an idea with the Iranians that they couldn't trust, actually, many of their interlocutors. And this is, of course, where um, the British now come in, which is, uh, which is interesting. And the reason... Don't worry, we've only got two slides left anyway. It's very... I mean, I could just speed it up and just... Uh, it didn't happen. There you go. No, anyway. The... Uh, now, the... Um, the... Uh, The man who's actually quite central to the negotiations of the British side is this gentleman, William Marshall. And what's crucial to understanding really the, this negotiation to develop was that it was a negotiation that was forged by Etimad and his relationship with William Marshall. These were the two technocrats. And they cultivated a very strong relationship. Etimad had very fond memories of him, actually. And Marshall was a keen advocate, of course, of the British nuclear industry. And they saw an opportunity in Iran. And what Etimad says and what the Iranians say is they say to the British, you're not really being aggressive enough in your attempts to get into the nuclear market here. Why don't you make us more offers? And it's quite interesting the way the Iranians from 1976 through to 1977 start to prepare the ground for a negotiation with the British. Now, the thing about the British reaction is it is depressingly slow. It's slow, they procrastinate, they're not quite sure what's expected of them. One of the things that the British understood is they said that really our industrial capacity is not big enough, is not developed enough in order to, to, to feed into the Iranian demands. But this actually was exactly what attracted Etimad to the British nuclear program. For him, the British nuclear program was compatible with Iran's needs. And why is this? Because it wasn't actually as developed or as, as successful as the Franco-German and of course, the British didn't have the sort of uh, political capacity of the Americans, and forget the Soviets for the time. So that, but the British occupied, in a curious way, uh, the ideal situation, because in, in some ways what Etimard was thinking was that your industrial capacity matches our industrial needs. You need investment in your, in, in your nuclear sector. We want training. We want to be able to develop our sector by uh, building up expertise, and we want technology transfer okay, from you. We will invest in your industry. You will supply us with the goods now. Through 1976, very little happened, apart from preparing the ground. And the key element here is bringing Tony Benn to visit the Shah in 1976. Now, Tony Benn's visit here is, is a striking one. Secretary of Energy, he comes in, you know, you'd sort of think, I don't know what his political leanings are, but you'd sort of think he might be a bit sceptical of a monarch sitting aloof in his uh, throne in Persia. Actually, he takes a real liking to that. He thinks the Shah is really fantastic. You know, all this central planning, it's good stuff. So he, he, he likes this sort of thing, and he, he, he talks. And in fact, if you look at the document, it's, it's fawning. He says, you know, your majesty must tell us more about how wise you've been in your governance of the country, and so on and so on. And uh, the one thing I will say uh, to you, for those interested in specifically the Iranian history, is the one document I've ever seen where the Shah actually specifically says, I'm going to abdicate in 1989. I've never seen him announce this anywhere. And yet the British note takes it and he says, you know, I've got maybe another decade or so, or another whatever, 15 years. As she says, 12 years, I think, 12 years. And then I'm going to, and then I'm going to abdicate in favor of my son. Now, when I talked to Etimad about this afterwards, I said, do you remember this? It's quite a striking thing for the Shah to say. He said, I can't remember at all. It seems to be very unlikely that the Shah would have made a statement of that nature. But there you are. It's in the document. It's the only place where you'll find that statement made. And he says it to Tony Benn. Tony Benn comes away. Etimad thinks this is marvelous. Everything's going rather well. You know, he's been to talk to me. I've told him what our demands are. Ben's gone off. But actually, very little happens for the next three, four months. 
And in fact, it's Hovedo then talks to the British in March, April, and he says, why the hell won't you make us an offer? So nothing really happens for another six months. And then in February 1977, I was speeding this up a bit. There is a little bit that happens, but it's not exciting. So in 1977, um, you can blame him. Uh, oh, read the paper, actually. In February, 5th and 6th of February, 1977, an interesting development. Marshall goes off to Tehran with the team, basically you talk about cooperation, collaboration, training, so on and so forth. And Etimad says, he goes through a long sort of discussion, yes, we want to send someone to Harwell, we'll do this, we'll do that. And he says, I have a radical proposal to make you on a very personal basis. And Marshall says, well, yes, what is it? How would you feel if we invested in British industry, in the nuclear industry, in return for you building us reactors, and we would have a joint company which would build reactors in both countries. And the details of this discussion in Now, Etimad says that this was his idea. The British are adamant that such an idea could not have been ventured without the Shah's approval. It would seem to be that Etimad was actually throwing out a sort of a, it was a fishing expedition in some ways. He was trying to see whether it would gain traction. And it does, it does gradually gain traction. Partly because the scale of the project being envisaged here is enormous. I talked to Etimad about this. I said, Did, were you aware of what you were offering here? And the important thing is it comes from the Iranians. It doesn't come from the British. It comes from the Iranians. And they say, what we're going to do is we're going to invest. And basically, the British calculate that it's worth $20 billion to them in foreign exchange earnings to build basically 20 reactors, but that basically they will set up a joint stock company called the Nuclear Company of Britain and Iran that will develop the nuclear industry in both countries, and there will obviously be peripheral interests that will mount to that. Now, the crucial thing about this is how the company was going to be organized. And this discussion takes place over six months in 1977. So in January to about June, they start to discuss, are the Iranians serious? And most of the British sort of say, we don't think they are. We think they're just fishing to try and enhance their hand with other people. Anti Parsons is the one the ambassador found, says, I think they are serious. They are serious, and these are the reasons, and it makes sense what they're doing. And Marshall himself says they mean to tempt us. They mean to tempt us and to hook us in with this enormous contract. And the contract would have been something which they felt would, you know, thousands and thousands of British jobs would be involved in it. Remember, this is the late 70s in Britain. This is something which, you know, would be very enticing to them. It would involve a degree of uh, uh, technology transfer, which they wanted to monitor, of course. But it was one, and this was perhaps the most interesting thing, uh, which some of them said, they said, the only way this joint stock company will work is if we treat British people as Iranians and Iranians as Brits. Now, that's a very, very striking thing to say. You can imagine why they wanted to keep it secret. But basically, if you treat each nationality as the other, the whole issue of sort of how you handle technology transfer becomes a little bit more opaque. Because the real problems were whether you would be breaking the law, in a sense, if you, if you, start, to, uh, uh, if you start to transfer more secretive aspects of, of, of enrichment, reprocessing, and so on and so forth. Now, the interesting thing was is that the British basically discussed this at some length about what the, the, the issues would be um, in terms of, of, of transferring the technology across the side. And there were two interesting discussions. The MOD, to some extent the Foreign Office, and, and, and certainly the, the Prime Minister's Office were very, very reluctant. Atomic Energy Agency in Britain, the UK, Atomica, were actually quite, you know, were a bit less problematic about it. Because, you know, we need to deal with it. Um, but the MOD were particularly worried. They sort of said, and they said the Americans will not be happy if we get involved in a deal like this. And it's quite clear that what Etimad is after is after something in the long term that will involve uh, enrichment capacity in Iran. 
Kissinger, as, as, uh, as we know, had basically proposed for them that they have a, uh, a, an enrichment, a regional center, uh, which actually both the British and the Iranians had said was junk. You know, we don't believe it. And the British were particularly said, we don't think it would work. Where, where are we going to put it? Um, and, and so basically there was an idea, and Etemad said, I want a commitment that my, while we may not have these facilities now, we would in due course. And interesting, in the documents they say, as far as we're concerned, the British response is, as far as we're concerned, our assessment of the Iranian industry is that it would not be able to sustain an enrichment capacity at the moment, and we should be able to hold them off until the turn of the millennium. Their assessment was probably about right, actually. Okay? So they basically say that, you know, we can't stop them necessarily going down the street, but we could slow it down. And the other interesting thing they say is that, do we actually say a blanket ban, like the French and the Germans were often saying, or the Americans? We say if we, in the British assessment, said that if we give them a blanket ban on this technology, they will probably go after it. But if we work with them, we can keep an eye on what's going on. I mean, that was the argument. It was the argument made by the UK Atomic Energy Agency. It was not bought by the MOD and others. They weren't that keen on it, I have to say. But certainly this was the argument, this is what was being pushed. That what we need to do is find a means of basically monitoring this development and working with this development. The agreement was too big for the British to largely ignore on, on, on that basis alone. But what it depended on, as far as the British were concerned, uh, as far as the Iranians were concerned, was on the British selecting a particular type of reactor, and that was a pressurized water reactor. Don't ask me what exactly that is, but that's what they wanted. Okay, and it's exactly the same reactor, in fact, that the Russians are planning to build for the Iranians now. And I always do wonder whether they just sort of dusted off this agreement to have a look at it. But it's basically, um, uh, it really, this, was this particular technology the Iranians wanted, the British said, you know, I think we can handle this, we can develop it, we might need to get some help from the French and the Germans on certain bits, but we don't want to go too far. Um, but this is the, this is the direction uh, we want to go. Yeah, that's yeah. It, was, it would have been bigger than Al Yamama, I think. But anyway, never mind. I think it would have been at the scale if it, if it had actually gone through. So, by the middle of '77, you get a memorandum. They spent three days in Tehran thrashing out a rather detailed outline agreement, and you can see this in the archives. It's all there. It's about 20, 30 pages, very detailed in terms of the corporate policy and how things were going to work out. Uh, the British were very keen. Um, throughout the summer. Uh, things started to get excited. The Shah himself talks about our civilization and our boys together and we'll all be good together. And he said, you know, the Brits and us, you know, we've always been, we're all going to run out of oil at the same time anyway, so we might as well develop our nuclear industry together. It was all seemed to be rather, you know, all go. But where is it that, uh, and I am shortcutting this a little bit for the benefit of Professor Dodge. Uh, but, why, is, uh, why does the deal fall apart? Why does the deal fall apart at the end of the day? One is ultimately because actually the industrial capacities in each country, although there was a balance and there was a feeling that essentially they matched, there was a sense of urgency in Iran, particularly what the Shah wanted to do, uh, that didn't match the pace of development that really this agreement would have, would have yielded. The Shah was very anxious to move ahead. Um, and basically the Iranians decided that they would return to turnkey contracts. And Suda Daniel, you'll see in one of the quotes there, is very reluctant to basically tell the British ultimately that the decision has been to go for these turnkey contracts and the Germans and the French in particular, and also in some ways the Americans, because frankly the Shah is in, this, uh, is in a bit of a rush. And we're not going to be able to deliver the sort of things that he wants, and the, the Iranian industry isn't sufficiently developed to do this. 
So that was one of the factors that, that actually went into uh, essentially um, a divergence of, 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 of interest. The other, from the British side, of course, were the various assessments of political risk and uh, how they felt this sort of relate, what this meant for the relationship. And there are, again, some interesting vignettes here. Because what you get is a discussion, and you see the internal workings between the MOD, the Foreign Office, and the Atomic Energy Organization of, of the UK, where they just say, you know, what are the problems against us actually having a long-term agreement with Iran of this nature? If we have an agreement of this nature, we envisage it would be a 20-year, 30-year agreement. What are the implications? Is the country stable enough? Remember, this is 1977, by the way. Okay, Is the country uh, stable enough? And what is about the situation of human rights? Now, the Shah had a somewhat loose attitude to public relations when it came to human rights. There's a wonderful moment when he announces, the, I think, an American paper where he announces there was some sort of, I don't know, I wouldn't say confidence, but sort of relaxed way that, you know, we only have 2,000 political prisoners. And, uh, and that's fine. You know. And uh, in, even in the Foreign Office document, this guy sticks an exclamation mark by this. You know, this is not a helpful comment. It's not that they didn't know about it, but they said, you know, it might help if we didn't, you know, brag about it, you know, we only have 2,000 people, because this doesn't look good, and they were very worried, actually, they sort of said, if we get into an agreement like this, I mean, it's interesting, you know, what will, how will British public opinion react? I mean, can we manage it? You know, what's the human rights record like? I mean, all these questions came up, I mean, it's in it. they were there, although someone said in the Foreign Office, quite interesting, he said, I think all this human rights stuff is a bit of a passing fad, I don't think we need to worry about it too much, which was quite interesting, he said, maybe now amnesty will make a bit of a noise, but I don't think it'll be a bit of a problem. More worrying for them was the issue of political stability. They said, what would happen if um, a different government came into power, if the Shah died, if so on and so forth? Um, interestingly, there wasn't a sense necessarily that um, uh, this was, there was a, a collapse on the way. I mean, and th this is one of the interesting things about the whole discussion, is you're moving in through 1977 and you know what's coming around the corner, but for the people at the time on the ground, there was no real inkling of this. But they did ask the question. I mean, there was a question in the back of their minds. They said, what happens if this happens? You know, is there a possibility of this happening? And it was asked, and they were answered. And I think basically in various quarters, there was a little bit more anxiety uh, over the possibility of getting into such an agreement. And certainly Tony Benn, at the end of the day, for all his admiration for the Shah, and it was pretty fawning, I have to say, um, at the end of the day, they took the decision not to go ahead with the pressurized water reactor. Now, what's striking is that in March 1978, Marshall goes to Tehran. Now, March 1978, he goes to Tehran, and he says, uh, he's talking to Etemad, and Etemad says, look, we cannot wait forever for you guys. We're, we've got to develop this program. We're going to sort of basically deal with the French and the Germans, and to some extent the Americans, as far as we can. If the British have an idea, if the British want to come in, we would welcome you in. We want you in. But since you've chosen not to go down the route of pressurized water reactors, we really don't have an opportunity to work with you. And I feel, in his sense, he says in March, that my moral obligation to the British is now over. You know, we spent two years discussing this. It hasn't actually happened. This is March 1978, by the way, and Marshall sort of signs off on his document. He says, ah, oh, it's a great tragedy. What a wasted opportunity. And he feels very, very uh, depressed by it. Nobody noticed, by the way, that the starting gun for the revolution had begun on the 8th of January 1978. And there's not a recollection in these documents. That's not the issue. What is the real issue is they're really depressed about the... Uh, failure of this agreement. But what does it tell us? And I'll now come to an end. Sort of, and one of the things that I think was very striking about the paper, uh, about the, the, the attempted agreement, were, were several things. One is it 
gives another sort of insight into the way in which the Shah's industrial policy was developed and how he wanted to, what the reasons were for his nuclear program and why ultimately it failed in the sense that, or the agreement, because he was in such a rush to get things done. I mean, this is reflected in many other aspects of his industrial policy. It also, you know, the reasons why they approached the British were quite striking. And one of the things that comes out in a document and an assessment when they look at it, they say, why have the Iranians come to us? Why have they come to us with this agreement? And bear in mind, please, ladies and gentlemen, this is 25 years after the, the abolition of the Anglo-Iranian oil company and the coup d'etat against Mossad. So 25 a generation, and yet they were willing to get involved in an agreement uh, uh, with Britain on a company that would have put Anglo-Iranian oil in the shade, by the way. This was a, something of a wholly different scale. And one of the reasons, interestingly enough, that they were listed for why the British were chosen over all the other countries is because the British were more honest. Think about it. And I think on that note, I shall leave it there on that poignant note about the honesty of Britain and uh, uh, open up to questions. Thank you, Thank you very much.